I listened to a podcast, I think it was an episode of 99% Invisible that was about curbs and where at corners there are the ramps down and up and how now it's like those are common in every community because people use them for strollers they use them for rolling suitcases they use them for wagons whatever but initially those were fought for by disability rights communities because people in wheelchairs couldn't get places so that was initially designed as an accessibility feature for people um, with different medical needs, I guess. Um, but then that went on to just a public good that people don't even necessarily know that that's where that originated. Welcome to Towards a Kinder Public, a podcast dedicated to designing kinder public space that better meets our interconnected needs. I'm Kevin Castle, and along with Annie Chen, we are Kinder Public. We are so fortunate to share another part of this discussion with Han Malin, who has worked and volunteered in the nonprofit sector for over 15 years across a broad range of areas, including visual arts, arts education, the LGBTQI plus community, human rights, and ending poverty. Han uses the pronouns they, them. I use the pronouns she, her. In this episode, we'll discuss how women and gender minorities are marginalized by the way we design and operate public space. Why failing to ensure the safety and dignity of all people in public space can impact our own experiences of inclusion how the history of curb cuts reveals that we were having the wrong conversations about the design of public bathrooms, and specific steps we can all take to improve accessibility and safety. Before we jump into the interview, I want to preface this with an explanation of why I applied the medical model of disability to our discussion about gender and the ubiquitous standard design of the male-female multi-occupant partitioned public bathroom. In fact, Regardless of who they are designated for by door signage, public restrooms are highly gender unspecific due to the lack of accommodations for pregnant, lactating, breastfeeding, menstruating, miscarrying, child-caring, menopausing bodies, and that list is just for a start, in favor of an efficient standard partition format. Just as the standardized partition format mostly ignores difference, the medical model seeks to cure or resolve difference and make body experience as much the same as possible, following a standard that is determined to be correct or ideal. In contrast, the social model of disability considers the creation of barriers to access in the ways that we design and operate our spaces. The social model sees difference as a natural part of human diversity, the United Nations Human Rights Council describes the social model this way. Disability is recognized as the consequence of the interaction of the individual with an environment that does not accommodate that individual's differences. Under the social model, the focus is on removing barriers so that persons with disabilities have the same opportunities to participate as others. So, we can consider the barriers to participation faced by other kinds of human diversity, like gender, to have been constructed by prioritizing one so-called 
standard body experience. As Han points out, the standard body experience that our society is built around is the typically abled, straight, cisgendered, only responsible for himself, male experience. This is so reductive and insufficient that it fails for many of us to capture the experience of even the same individual's body across one month. But here's the really interesting thing. Regardless of our personal identity, the one change in our status that we can all expect to encounter in terms of accessibility is aging and all of the body and ability changes that come along with that process. And this is why working towards accommodation, meaning towards safety, dignity, and inclusion for all, will benefit us all. If we fail to design for difference, we'll have to accept the consequences of our own inflexibility. This episode is rated clean for language, but we are providing a content advisory. For survivors, the LGBTQI community, and parents, be advised that there is reference to male violence and assault. Please listen with some discretion, but we are so glad that you joined us. As we jump back into the conversation, we are speaking about women and gender minorities and queer people, and do these groups share any overlapping needs? I do think that there are a lot of overlaps in terms of uh, needs and challenges because all of the people that can fall under any of those categories are marginalized communities because our country and our society was set up for cisgendered white men and straight cisgender white men. Mm -hmm. And so anything that falls outside of that, you are going to face things that were not designed for you. And you are going to face people who don't like you and think that you don't deserve uh, rights or access based on who you are. So, yeah. So I think that there is, there's a lot of overlap um, and also a lot of nuance to the conversation because obviously people can check one box or a ton of boxes or no boxes and still face some or all or of the various things that come up with being part of a marginalized community. So. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Can you talk about the importance of queer accessible and safe spaces? Yeah. Um, so as with, again, any marginalized community, there's sort of an awareness that there's never really been safety um, that is part of existing in the world. And so having spaces where you can truly feel safe and comfortable and not have to have your guard up all the time is so important Mm -hmm. for mental health, for physical health, for sense of community, little things that people who don't experience it don't think about, you know, like, are, are, are you safe holding hands with your partner in public? Can you use the bathroom and not worry about um, the police being called on you or about people harassing you? Are you just able to, you know, dress the way you want, present the way you want in a public space without getting harassed or attacked? Um, and so having spaces where you can, having places where you genuinely feel like you don't have to really worry about it is so valuable. It's so validating and um, I don't know if comforting is exactly the right word, but sort of to go into spaces where I know that there are other people like me who understand my experience, who are making sure that it is it is safe to be there, or even if they aren't like me, that they understand that there are people who aren't like them and that need different things than they do and are open to that and aren't going to judge and aren't going to attack or try to talk you into being somebody that you're not. 
yeah, I mean, it's just the the right to be is something that a lot of people take for granted, mm-hmm. but it's not a given. Right. I just want to bring back this a portion of this discussion we were having about safety being something or a lack of safety being something that groups can share and that social aggression, a sort of attitude of social aggression towards other people can impact everyone if it's tolerated. Yeah. And so everyone has an, as a vested interest in making sure that that is not the character of our public. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's um, <laughs> I talk to people a lot about circles of empathy because I think everybody kind of has their threshold of how far out their empathy extends. Some people, it's just themselves and they're, mm-hmm. you know, self-centered narcissistic people. Some people, it's their immediate circle. It's their close friends and their close family and they can't really see outside of that. So they protect those people and not further out. Some people, it's their full community. Some people, it's the world. Mm-hmm. It just depends on how you view things and what your personal values are. But I think that people don't realize that if you are only protecting people within your circle and aren't looking outside of that, you don't know when it's going to hit your circle mm-hmm. because things change over time. And, you know, we kind of talked about the first they come for X. I don't even remember who wrote that, but it's it's old. I think it was around Nazi era, first Nazi era um, that that was talked about. But it's the same thing. You know, we're seeing attacks on trans people and gender nonconforming people. We're seeing attacks on women, but it, it slides. And if you look the other way and don't protect people that are different than you, there is no one left to protect you when it comes to you. So even if you only care about your own safety, you should still care about the safety of others. I'm a person who my circle of empathy is the entire world, which is why I do the kinds of work that I do. But I think that a lot of people don't recognize that even if it doesn't affect you directly now, it can later. Mm -hmm. So yeah, recognizing that that just because it's not you now doesn't mean it won't be soon. Right, right. Yeah. I'm really interested in the ways that our identities can converge with locations to create different conditions and experiences. And several podcasts ago, I spoke with a friend of mine who is a dad and for reasons of gender and athletic abilities, he might be considered an individual who is typically privileged in his access to public space. But this friend has organized family and work life with his spouse so that he is actually the primary caregiver of their young child and their family. So his role steps outside of conventional gender expectations. When I spoke to him about the accessibility of public space for dads with small children, it seemed to me that he forfeited some of the privileges he could typically expect when he stepped into a role that was conventionally and historically performed by women. When thinking about improving accessibility, are we right to be talking about accommodating categories of people based on biological or medical model thinking? And I'm, I want to clarify, this is an idea that I'm working on and I feel like that's what we're doing. We're, we're yeah. using a very um, medical sort of lens to look at how we're defining these spaces. Or should we really be talking about broadening the social expectations and rethinking things by taking a close look at how we must all do much more in public space than is ever accounted for by our built environment? And we must take on more rules than is ever accounted for <laughs> in thinking through those spaces. And our bodies are different. Our bodies may be doing different things on different days, and we are all aging. And so uh, does this question somehow bring us right back to the importance of queer spaces? I would say, yeah. I mean, I think that because there is such a spectrum and an overlap, you know, um, I 
listened to a podcast. I think it was an episode of 99% Invisible that was about curbs and where at corners there are the ramps down and up and how now it's like those are common in every community because people use them for strollers they use them for rolling suitcases they use them for wagons whatever but initially those were fought for by disability rights communities because people in wheelchairs couldn't get places they'd get to a street corner and get stuck in some places and so that was initially designed as an accessibility feature for people um, with different medical needs, I guess. Um, but then that went on to just a public good that people don't even necessarily know that that's where that originated. And I think that that is, you know, very similar in other places when you've got water fountains that are high and low, the low ones are for kids, but they're also for people who are lower to the ground for various reasons, medical or otherwise. Um, when you've got handrails, they are for older people, they're for people with mobility issues, they're for small kids. Um, there's a lot of things like that, that are relevant to multiple communities, regardless of whether it is because of something that you were born with or an injury or because of just how you use space based on who you are as a person. And so I think that a lot of the things that we consider like quote unquote accommodations are just things that should be the norm. Single stall restrooms, mm -hmm. you know, that's from a, from a gender rights space. That is a huge issue. But so many people don't think about the fact that single stall bathrooms benefit everybody. Right. Um, they benefit people who have who have kids who need to go change their kid and don't want to like don't want pushback on on changing a child in public because that often there aren't access to changing tables um single stall restrooms are helpful for people who are in wheelchairs or who have health issues that make using a public bathroom really uncomfortable for them either physically or emotionally right um for people who don't feel safe in large public spaces for whatever reason right. they do they just benefit everyone there's no reason not to have them other than that it's not as cost efficient in some places as building one big thing but the pushback is people use um trans identities as a way to justify not having something that would benefit everybody and actually their own arguments go against what they say because they say well you know we don't want men in the women's bathroom and like, well, well they're women but two if they're single stall you don't have to worry about it because there is only one person going into that bathroom. Like, exactly. It helps across the board. And so I think that there are a lot of things like that where you might start from a biological or medical lens, but that it really goes further than that. And I think that thinking about that in the opposite direction is also important. Yeah. Like, you know, there are things that we probably should consider that just make everyone's lives easier, regardless of there being like specific reasons you quote, need the change or not, um, mm -hmm. that just make it easier to exist in public spaces for everybody. Um, and I think that a lot of reasons people don't do those things is because of cost, because capitalism is fun. Um, but then they use sort of the excuse of, well, it's only for X people, and we shouldn't have to cater to them as the reason to not make changes that are just common sense. Right, exactly. And we're having the completely wrong conversation. I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> And I think it might be very uncomfortable for some people to acknowledge that we, you know, do have these interconnected needs. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. What are the things we should be doing to improve access and safety in public space for women, gender minorities, and queer people? And I would just like to add that this friend of mine that I talked to was not using men's bathrooms, even if they were outfitted with a diaper changing station, because he did not want his child to be in a men's room. So yeah, this is something that we're going to unpack. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> um, so what are the things that we should be doing to improve 
equitable access and safety in public space? Um, I mean, one, I think, is outside of like a design and changing things that cost money lens is situational awareness, um, paying attention to the people around you, to what's going on, to what you're seeing, whether people are having trouble, whether people seem like they don't feel safe, whether you're seeing somebody getting harassed or any number of things. I think that, that you know, we as a society need to watch out for each other and um, offer help when needed, you know, never force your help on somebody, but offering is always good. This is mm-hmm. um, a thing that got talked about a lot in the wake of the 2016 election when there was a real rise in hate crimes against um, people of color, um, specifically brown populations. And there were a lot of sort of trainings from like white ally groups in terms of situational awareness and bystander intervention training and like, how do you deescalate? How do you check in? How do you make sure that people are safe? And I think that it's good that that happened and also sad that that was what it took mm-hmm. um, to make that happen because I think that you know, all of us at some point or another have been helped by a stranger, whether it was because we were in danger or just because we were struggling. And you see it everywhere from, you know, someone offering to help me get a table up the stairs at the subway when I was, you know, 24 and trying to carry a table I bought on Craigslist on my back from Midtown to Sunset Park, or, (laughs) you know, people filming when Black people get stopped by police to make sure that there's a record of what is happening should something happen. And I think that those are all on the same spectrum of making sure that where you are, you are looking out for your community and for the people around you. And then from the perspective of like, you know, built things and access in a physical sense, I think that good lighting and places that are publicly visible are two really high on the list ones that people don't often think about. You know, going to use a restroom in a dark corner of a bar where no one can see around the corner is very different than using a bathroom that's in a a well-lit area where a lot of people are coming and going and somebody will see somebody going after you. Mm -hmm. Things like that, where if you're not somebody who has had to worry for your safety, you don't necessarily think about it. Um, You often hear stories where women or female perceived people or uh, visibly queer people will share experiences of, you know, crossing the street when somebody uh, is walking near them. And often cis men would be offended by that idea. But if something happens, we're held responsible saying, well, why were you doing X? Why weren't you doing Y? And I think that there are things like that, that people just don't think about if they aren't the ones that are frequently in danger, because why would you necessarily unless somebody told you? And I know that I've been very guilty of that in communities that I'm not a part of in terms of uh, communities of color, in terms of disability communities that aren't ones that I am part of, where it's just things you don't think about until somebody tells you this is a problem. And so I think having those larger conversations on things like where do people feel unsafe instead of getting defensive and saying, well, not all people are like that. It's like, okay, well, what can we do to make sure that those circumstances are less likely to occur? Mm -hmm. Because why not have preventative measures if you can? Like there's just, other than again, cost prohibition, there's no real reason to not just make sure that you've got that kind of thing. Good lighting, presence of people, not necessarily security, but having space monitors when you've got um, a space that's being used for public events and things, having somebody from an outside perspective there just to keep an eye on things. I think that that can all be really key. Mm -hmm. All too often, the people who are dominating this discussion regarding safety and accessibility are people that represent one point of view. Exactly. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to check out our website, kinderpublic.com, 
For more information about our guest and the topic, as well as a full transcript of the conversation, which can be found on the podcast page. A captioned episode is also available on our YouTube channel, where we are at Kinder Public. If you have enjoyed an episode of Towards a Kinder Public, we would love your help in sharing the episode with others. Please also consider leaving us a rating and a review. It helps us make our topics more visible, and we really appreciate your support. I'm Kevin Castle. My guest has been Han Malin. Our conversation will continue in the next episode. Please take extra care. We'll see you next week.